0: Hello and welcome to the official podcast of Palate Exposure, featuring Alona Thompson, a podcast for those seeking the ultimate in wine, food, and travel. Each week, she interviews winemakers, chefs, celebrities, and a variety of guests that shape the way we enjoy life. Yeah, you know that that was that was really important to me and. Um... You know, I still sit on an advisory board for the Emerald Legacy Foundation down in, in New Orleans and have participated in a lot of his events. And, and you just see how much a few dollars goes a long ways in these impoverished areas. And, you know, some of the unfortunate events that we've had happen here in Northern California with the fires in 2017 and again in 2019, again just a little bit of money and and um, and help organization putting auctions together can really help people get back on track get their lives back on track and you know what that does is then it helps the community get back on track um, as you help those individuals i mean any community is only as weak as its weakest link and if you're taking care of people that are homeless or, you know, schools that don't have the supplies, I mean, when I found out that, you know, like the Alexander Valley spaghetti feed, I would donate a magnum of William Sallium and sign my name and, you know, somebody would pay seven, $800. And I had like a third grade teacher come up to me and say that that would pay for like all of her art supplies for like the year. You know, just that one bottle was enough to to give her enough Reese money to then go out and buy the art supplies that she needed for the projects for her kids for a year. And I'm thinking, well, why didn't I donate two Magnums then at that point? And, and I think, you know, um, teaching people that, that, you know, you really do, we all do have to kind of take care of each other. And... Um, when you are fortunate enough to to have successes, and the successes I've had in life, I think that y- you need to you need to pay it forward, whether it's in your in your career or within your communities.
1: No, I I am just so grateful for people like you. I've been coming to Sonoma County for many years, and the communal spirit really lives there. And when some of the most tragic, dramatic events happen, it's in the face of adversity when the best of humanity really comes out.
0: Um, it, it's amazing. And, you know, and you do, then you start to meet those other community leaders. And, you know, that's how I kind of got hooked up with Destin Vallette. You know, I make um, his Vallette Pinot Noir and his Rosé, and then Jesse Katz makes his Cabernet, and Tom Rocchioli makes the Chardonnay. And, you know, Dustin approached me and just said, you know, he wanted kind of the best was in his mind, you know, for these varietals. And so he approached each of us individually. And Dustin and I, uh, you know, our relationship has definitely grown and, you know, watching his kids grow. And when he calls me and asks me, I mean, I'm still a trustee at Sonoma Country Day School. And I take that very serious, and making sure that 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 next generation of kids are are able to experience what what my daughter's who's leaving for college here in another couple of weeks uh, got to experience. And you know, Dustin calls me up and says, "Hey, can you stop by the restaurant? I I need to talk to you." And we we have this conversation because his oldest, Charlotte, is ready to start kindergarten, and you know, it's a big decision. Where do I send her? You know, what what is available and and you know what was your experience at Sonoma Country Day and, or what was your experience at the Healdberg school and I, I told him you know Sonoma County has a plethora of of school formats that really are can be tailored to your child's needs you just need to find that school and I said, so doing your homework is the only way to do this, Dustin. And, you know, I'd advise you to do the same thing. Find somebody from the Healdsburg School and St. John's and talk to the, the local public school administrators and, and teachers and just have those frank conversations with them. And, and you can start to piece together. Um, you and Joanna will be able to, to figure out that maybe this will be the path that will be best for Charlotte. So you know that's what he did, and and um, you know I'm really proud that that he came to me and said you know it wasn't about wine and it wasn't about food and it wasn't about it seems like we're always donating a dinner or he's like I'll do this dinner for six and you'll do the wines and you know it was a very personal thing and I think that you make those connections because you see what what these people do in the community.
1: Yeah, he's another great example of. Community.
0: Oh no, when when the COVID hit. Healdsburg and things were shut down, you know, I know he was one of the first people to to step up and say, okay, uh, I'm going to start figuring out um, how we're going to feed first responders during the fires of 2019. And, you know, he starts calling everybody and saying, okay, you know, the town's shut down. We've got all this food. We need to feed these people, the first responders, because they're going to save our town. And, you know, he helped lead that charge and, you know, got everybody on board right from the beginning. And I think it made a huge difference in how they were able to combat the fires.
1: Absolutely. Um, I was in Hillsburg just Literally a few days ago, and I noticed they're still doing the work in his second location, Matheson. I was wondering how that was going, so I was very gratified to see that that's moving forward.
0: It and is, yeah. yeah,
1: so it's awesome. And by the way, that rose and Pinot that you're making for Dustin, <laughs> I've had yeah. it, I'm just saying, delicious. And I'm a really tough rose customer. That rose sings, seems-
0: yeah. No, the rose is just a fun wine to make, and um, Dustin, again, it's just it's a great friendship and relationship and he's, he's just a great, they're a great family to be working with and, and partnering with and, and it's it, beautiful. Um,
1: um yeah. what a beautiful story to generationally his dad, a firefighter that was fighting fires.
0: In yeah, no, Bob gets up in the bombers and he's dropping retardant and yeah, it's, it's yeah. awesome that, and again, you just see how the community kind of comes together, you know,
1: I wish every community had a Dustin and a Bob because if we just take care of each other, it's amazing how, then, in a larger scale, things would look very different if we just paid attention to our neighborhood.
0: Yeah, they, um, they, they
1: do. I, I see a couple of barrel tops behind you, and of course, you mentioned yeah. that. Um, yeah, those are. Kind of more of a trophy display,
0: so, but just- so yeah, going into um, you know making the Bob Cabral wines, yeah. you know what was important to me is uh, you know it's not just about getting the the best barrels, but also partnering with your suppliers. I I didn't just want to be another customer, and I've never treated I, I I don't feel like I've ever treated my growers or my my bottle suppliers or my cork suppliers. Um, you know, I don't want to be just another customer. I want it to be a partnership so that they understand what I'm trying to accomplish and I understand their needs as well as a company so that they're viable and they stay in business. And, you know, when Ryan and I started at Williams Sal- or at um, Three Sticks, uh, I was approached by Tonelia Rio about a uh, program called the Master Cooper program. So, Josh Trowbridge, who is the um, GM and vice president of Tanoya Rio, it's a division of Cork Supply International, um, they built a cooperage down in Benicia and they hired Quinn Roberts, uh, whose dad is Keith Roberts, who started Mendocino Cooperage up at Fetzer back in the 80s. And Keith, I think, changed the landscape of, of American oak barrels, you, you know more so than anybody in, in the industry, where he sourced wood from much colder climates from stave mill producers like Stagmire up in in Minnesota, the Ohio Valley, you know, really looking at why is French oak so much different than than American oak and could we make something comparable? So Quinn kind of grew up in the in the barrel making business, if you will, with it with his dad. And um you know, has become this this master cooper, and and really is a partner in developing barrels um, for the individual winemaker. So the master cooper project was started, and we Ryan and I flew to France with Quinn and Josh, and we actually went out to the forest and harvested the trees. We learned about the flora, the other species of trees out there how the species of the oak we were purchasing, um, how the forests were managed by the government, um, and then followed that tree from harvest to the stave mill producer. Um, in Mary Abois, we're using the Goutier family, Camille Goutier. So the trees would then be brought, um, the, the downed trees would be brought into the Goutiers. They would split them into our staves, then stack them in in the Cubes, they're like meter by meter cubes, and then store them in their yard for three years, and then we would we would ship those staves to Benicia by boat, and then um, Quinn and his team would make the barrels or put the flowers together, and then Ryan and I go to the cooperage every year while they're toasting them, and we have literally developed a toast that is unique to our specific wines. And and I started using the barrels. Of course, those first couple of years, we were buying oak that had already been harvested because we wanted to really get into the toasting part. So we ended up um, using oak primarily from the center of France. And then again, working with Quinn saying this is what we like about this cooper's barrels this is we tasted a lot of wines and we came up with these with these trials so now after doing that for 6 years we've got it narrowed down to a couple of forest and like two basic toast levels for three sticks and then i have a different toast level i use for bob cabral wines um, but again it goes back to partnering with you know the guy that's actually cutting down the tree that's splitting the staves aging the staves then they get shipped to the cooperage working with the guys that are building your your barrels and you know i thought i knew a lot about barrels until you start until i started this process and i realized that i didn't know really anything about something that was so such an important flavor profile in my wines. So, for me, it's been a whole new learning process. It's it's like I'm becoming um, more knowledgeable about barrels and the forest and in and, and various areas in France and why the trees grow where they do and and why the flavors are imparted. Much like Pinot Noir grown in Sebastopol is going to taste very different from Pinot Noir grown in Annapolis. Mm-hmm. Different soils, different climates. You can take the exact same root stocks and clones, and not that they're going to make two completely different wines, but for somebody who tastes a lot of Pinot Noir, they're different enough and they're going to have unique characteristics to their specific sites. And that's what's been fun about this barrel program. Um, I also still work with you know uh, just the commercial producers like Francois Ferrer. I have a Francois Ferrer barrel head up there. Um, It's a great cooper and it's a very stable uh, it makes up about 50 percent of my oak in my Bob Cabral Pinot Noir. Uh, It's about a third to 40 percent of the three sticks blend And then I have a couple of other consulting projects I'm working on, a couple of startups with some folks, and we're integrating some of those as well as the Master Cooper barrels. The great thing about the Master Cooper barrels is as I'm doing these other projects and I sit down with the owners and we talk about the style of wines they like, I'm trying to translate their thoughts into a barrel that I think will achieve that with the fruit that we have access to. So, I'm really back to a very hands on tasting out in the vineyards um part of my job and you know that's what really makes me happy um being yeah. being in a cooperage, smelling the barrels as they're being toasted, and um saying you know let's let let's put it on a higher heat for five more minutes wow. you know." and um, smelling the oak and and I think I'll get good at this by doing it a lot you know it's like making wine I think every year is a learning uh, year and the more you do it I think the better you get or at least you make less mistakes usually
1: speaking of like the trees themselves you know, um, you know, there's obviously a the terroir aspect, and of course, who can forget about a hundred-year proposition that it takes to get there. What I'm really curious about is that I've heard that you can actually taste the wood, and then there's, you know, variances. I, when I first realized that's possible, I'm like, what do you do? Do you chew on it? I mean, what are the mechanics of actually tasting? Yeah, no,
0: no. We um, we'll we'll take sawdust because there. Uh-huh. Um, Sebastian, the harvester who we've now worked with for six years, you know, he uses a chainsaw to down the, to fall the trees. Um, and some of these trees are 200, 250 years old and it's just amazing. And you know, what's funny is, you know, that had me work, you know, when I first started to understand the process in the 1920s, we, we buy exclusively, uh, from Fouté forest, which are French government owned forests. So they're managed. Um, in the 20s and 30s, about 14% of France's landmass were these fouté forests. In 2015, they're almost 27%. So it's almost doubled in 100 years. And the French government, I think, realized even, you know, like 100 years ago that um, they needed to keep planting these forests or they needed to keep rotating this land. So, when people go, how do you cut down a 200-year-old tree? I go, it's really easy because they're already growing trees for my great-great-great-great-grandchildren, should they want to become winemakers. So, it's a very sustainable proposition here. Uh And they use, as they thin out the forest, you know, that, that wood gets used for all kinds of products all through the life of that plot of land. And it's very efficient, and and you know, it's a living thing. So you're actually growing something. So um, so we actually will taste or smell the sawdust, and then sometimes the 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 trees towards the center of the trees, where it'll splinter as it fractures, uh, we'll take a knife and cut off and literally chew on some of the wood. And you'll you'll get different flavors. Um, I'm starting, well, especially for Bob Cabral wines, I've migrated my oak to more of the northern part of France, northeastern part in the Boge Mountains near, there's some plots of land near the town of Darnay. So it's at a higher elevation, a little colder, snows a little more, soils a little bit cruddier up there. So the trees are a little bit stressed. They grow slower. So they're very tight-grained, and there's a spice element to those that I taste that I don't taste down towards Aligny or Chateau Rue, you know, or, or Fontainebleau, so south of Paris, you know, in the Navarre or Allier forest areas. So you really do, as you chew on these twigs, if you will, splinters... Um, you start to develop um, a memory of what these things taste like. And, and I, you know, I always tell young winemakers, taste wines. That's how you build the memory bank, is by tasting a lot of wines. And it's the same thing with, with barrels. You just, you got to taste, you got to taste this stuff. And it's, it's remarkably different, much more different than you would think.
1: I'm, I'm sure that you don't know this but you were the first winemaker probably a decade plus ago now as I think about it, a little scary time certainly flies that taught me about tasting the seeds.
0: Oh yeah, I yeah.
1: Really were the first one and that completely <laughs> rearranged my head at the time.
0: <laughs> well there's a lot of tannin in seeds and yeah. if the seeds aren't ripe especially in Pinot Noir where you've got and even Cabernet where you've got these little tiny berries you've got a high concentration of tannin and anthocyanins in the skins, but then you also have a lot of that in the, in the seeds themselves. Uh And, you know, for me, a indication of kind of physiological ripeness is when those seeds start to harden and turn. Um, The pulp separates from the seed a little bit more. So like, I've been out in vineyards, you know, these last couple of weeks, literally tasting grapes now. And a lot of my comments are, you know, it's still kind of pulpy, seeds are kind of green, even though you may see bricks start to rise. um, Carbohydrate accumulation isn't always um, an indication of ripeness. And you want to look at kind of the whole physiological ripeness of a grape before you try to make wine out of it.
1: I'm just doing a little celebration in my head because you're the first that would really put me in about the gravitas of the seeds. And now you're the first that really explained very succinctly what it means to taste wood that goes into the barrel. Um, so uh, we, we had a yeah, couple
0: I think. Of well, <laughs> you know, but but to be honest with you, I mean, I, I, I always had opinions on different toast levels and even wood, from Vosges versus Troncay versus Allier-Nabair. But now I have a whole different appreciation um, for that because I'm starting to understand the species of oaks that grow in those particular areas. And then also how the the other trees, whether it's birch or alder or whatever else grows around it, also affects the environment of that tree. And, uh-huh and the fungi that grow around there and the pollens and and it's it's really fascinating and for me it it just feels like i have this this renewed energy for for being able to learn more about my craft even after 41 vintages you know
1: beautiful and of course it's fascinating that that ecosystem that you're describing you know the company you keep Imparts all this influences on you, right? So, this is a similar dynamic.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, you said something earlier that kind of really got my attention. I just want to go back in time to 98 for a second. You mentioned that um, the, this particular mentorship was very unique because they were not, you know, very forthright at William Salliam, mm-hmm. showing the world what happens behind the closed doors in the cellar. Right. So I wanted to ask you what it was like when you first started working there. Were there any through discoveries and things that just kind of rearranged your mind or was it just, you know, something that you already knew and was validated? What was that like those first even few weeks and months working on well, it?
0: Well, it took me back to very rudimentary winemaking. You know, they didn't have a lot of, ca- didn't spend a lot of capital on technology. So they, they really kind of, handcrafted wines yeah um we didn't have thermostats so we we control controlled the temperature on the tanks by mm-hmm. moving ball valves wow and trying to guess you know which meant that you had to spend a lot of time at the winery and you had to be checking on things so it it was It was good that 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 was the approach because you were really handcrafting wines. Um, It just kind of opened up processes that I had and techniques that I was using. I wasn't necessarily using them in a complete thought process, you know, it's easy to say, well, I use open top fermenters or, or I punch down. Well, when do you punch down? How many times a day do you punch down? You know, there's, there's, there's some little idiosyncrasies that, that are crossing those T's and dotting those eyes that make a difference in, in the larger scheme of things. So for me, it was about kind of putting the whole process together and it some of the things I was doing, I felt I was doing right, but then I could improve upon because then I I could do something else later on down the road or not do something else. The other thing Bert taught me was patience. He goes, you know, sometimes you just gotta, they'll go through, pinots will go through a funky stage and you just let them go through the funky stage, you know? and. um a lot of winemakers want to rack the wines. They want to fix the problem all the time. And I would say that's, that's probably the biggest problem I have with young winemakers I work with now, especially kids out of school, is they want to fix the problem. It's like, well, is it really a problem? It's, it's a problem in your professor's eyes. If the wine stays like that, yes, it's a problem. But if it's just a phase in the life of the wine, then it's not a problem and you need to be patient and see and nurture it through its issues. So you don't necessarily have to all of a sudden rack a barrel if it's going through kind of a closed reductive phase in the middle of winter. And then when it warms up and the cellar warms up, um, oxygen will permeate that barrel a little bit more and, and things will chemically change in there and it may not be as offensive to you as it was, you know, six months ago. So, you know, I think a lot of it was just learning um, how to complete the process, you know, fully. One thing I really did pull out of it that is a little bit of, not my signature, but it's followed me around is the dairy milk tanks that we used at William Siam. I have a fabricator at Sonoma Stainless, a guy named Vince Ferrer that I've known for years. I, I met Vince when he was a welder for Larry Allery over at West Tech. And Vince started his own company and he came out and measured my three favorite tanks. And I came to realize that the size of the fermenter, the shape of the fermenter made a difference in how that wine turned out. And, you know, Bert had a favorite tank that he always put roccioli in and, you know, and I found myself doing the same thing. So now Vince is actually constructing those um, dairy milk style tanks, but with full jackets. And, you know, we added things like a bottom door so you didn't have to bucket it out over the top. I think we're gentler on the wine and gentler on the skins and seeds than we were at Williams-Sallium. Uh, just because we've made those modifications to be much more gentle. So I've had tanks built for, I think, Three Sticks now has maybe 10 of these tanks. And I just had uh, six more delivered over at another winery for a a new customer. And from two and a half tons all the way up to seven tons. So, you know, I've got two and a halves, fours, five and a half, and seven tonners, and just depending on the vineyard and the clone and the growing season, we can make the choice of where to put this fruit. And I think really kind of help that fruit go in a direction that it may want to go, that it wouldn't have the opportunity had we used just a cylindrical tank or plastic bins.
1: Yeah. Wow. It's worth a mention, a mention that you're California's first 100-point Pinot Noir winemaker. Um, <laughs> quite, quite an honor, um, but scores aside, every single wine that I've ever had from you was undeniably delicious. Um, consistency is such key. Um, vintage variants, yes, of course, they're all different, but qualitatively, the bar was always high and stayed high throughout the years, has there been any standouts for you for any reason, whether they were difficult children or something, that just really, um, you know, staying and nearly made itself, is there some standouts that um, you can highlight for us?
0: Yeah, you know, the 2007 vintage was probably one of my most uh, awarded vintages at Williams-Salleum. It was just one of those, um, and I really didn't see it as any Things special or spectacular as far as harvest um, it was a very easy vintage things kind of came in very methodically and it was yeah nothing nothing really really stands out it was it was a pretty easy vintage you know a couple vintages after that 2010 was a little bit of a tough vintage uh, we had some really cold weather uh, 2000, so I'm really proud of the 2010s. Um, we, in 2011, we had an extremely cold, cold vintage and, um, you know, I'm probably, I've actually tasted some of those wines and I made decisions that were the right decisions at, you know, um, at the time. And the wines developed the way I thought they would develop. So um, I'm really proud of the 2011s and it wasn't, it was, you know, almost every major writer and even, you know, consumer um, advocates kind of panned the 2011s. And I saw a lot of young winemakers kind of panic um, and you know, I remember sitting on a panel with a bunch of um, winemakers down in San Francisco, and we were presenting something to um, the quartermasters of sommeliers. And we're in a big ballroom, and I was definitely the oldest winemaker of the group. And this was probably 2013 or 2014. And um, I was the last one to speak, and all of them, had, we were talking about the 2011s. And they backed off on all the oak. They didn't use any whole clusters. And they were talking about why they they just wanted the wines fresh and clean. And then they got to me, and I'm like, oh, my God, I did just the opposite. And it was like, I don't want to contradict what these guys are saying because it's valid. I think there's 20 different ways to make a bottle of wine, and it's whatever that winemaker's vision is. So I just – I. Said you know I'm I'm a little bit of the outlier here. Um, when I saw that we tannins, uh, it took longer for them to ripen. We didn't get the carbohydrate production that we wanted, so I did use some grape concentrate in some cases, but to to bring the alcohols up for mouthfeel. But I actually increased all of our our. Um, whole clusters because we were lacking some of the skin tannin and I wanted more of that stem tannin and oak tannin to balance those all out. So you've got those four tannins, skin, seed, oak, and stem in the case of Pinot Noir. And it's a, every vintage, it's about balancing those so that in the end, you've just got a wine that is, tastes pleasant. Yeah, and some years you're gonna have to use more oak some years you're gonna have to use more whole cluster Um, it it just that's what I like about wine making is it's not cookbook You, you can't just do the same things every year you can and, and you'll be very consistent in in some of the wines But you really need to be flexible And wanting to to be able to to make those adjustments on the fly. So Um, 2011 was a was a fun vintage Um, you know 2015 my first vintage with my name on the bottle at least on the back label it's not really on the front label Um, you know will always mean something to me I think Um, because I worked really hard to 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 grow those grapes and um, make the wines uh, and you know i think that um to be consistent and to make wines uh, of the this caliber you really have to surround yourself with with people that are like-minded and i have a really good cellar staff at at three sticks as well so hector and kevin are right there with me when i'm racking barrels and pressing tanks and you know hector's on the forklift dumping the the bins as I'm raking them into the press and, you know, we're loading the press together because it's not a one-man job. I can't make the wines completely by myself. I would like to if I could, but it's not a one-man job. And to have those people right there and, you know, I'm tasting the press press fractions and I'm handing the glass over to Hector, I'm handing it to Kevin saying, what do you think? Um, Because I think it's important for them to understand what I'm trying to achieve and um so i've kind of said this in the past that i've never really made a great bottle of wine by myself it's always kind of been a team effort and a lot of my successes have always been because it's it's been a group effort and um bob cabral wines is is pretty much the same thing and you know whether it's out in the vineyard with the growers or the the vineyard owners and or the guys pulling leaves And you just go out there and show them what you're doing, and sometimes I take bottles of wine out there to that vineyard and say, this is what we're trying to make. And I think it's important to educate people, get them all on the same page.
1: Well, you guys have heard from the sage himself. I've been saying this for years, and it's so incredibly validating to hear you say that 2011 vintage is so underrated, and it aged so well, and it showed a lot of stamina, you know, both from master artisans like you that didn't panic, that did the right thing, that made the right decisions in the vineyard and in the cellar. And it's really paying off. Those wines frequently have bargains at auctions. I would urge you to run, not walk. Yeah, yeah. And of course, on the subject of Bob Cabral wines, um, we're going to need to do a separate segment on that. I really want to kind of get into it and talk about all your inspiration. So we're going to do a separate show for you guys, something to look (laughs) forward to for you. Um, In closing, I just wanted to ask, you know, you have your hands full with three sticks and Bob Cabral and all your charitable activities. Um, So I know you're very busy, but what do you look forward to? Like, what what does the future look like for Bob Cabral?
0: Um, you know, I look forward to, um, kind of just the next vintage and, um, uh, the next place I get to learn about, uh, making wine. You know, I'm fascinated with Chardonnay up in Oregon right now. And, um, my daughter's going to school at Lewis and Clark, and I have been doing some consulting for a brand up there in the Willamette Valley. And, um it's just very different soils different growing season than i see down here in in sonoma and sonoma county and um you know it's just it's a cool place and i see why winemakers from california were drawn up there and i would uh, you know for the future for me i would love to do more of a project up there i'd like to stay on with three sticks as long as they'll have me i think we're we're, we're getting that, that ball rolling. Um, I like the team that we have. Um, you know, I think we're getting a better grip on the vineyards. Uh, the Three Sticks 2019 Chardonnays, you know, I haven't been this excited about a vintage of Chardonnays. Like, there is not one that that isn't, in my mind, great. And the Durrell Chardonnay is what i've been looking for now whether it gets big scores or whatever i don't really care because you know my my long time uh, nemesis of perfection um, it, you know is what i'm chasing yeah and i think in the 19 and i told bill uh, bill price this that the 19 Durrell chardonnay man it's it's a great bottle it's going to be a great bottle of wine once we get it in the bottle and uh you know i think it just why that vintage you know and i i not that i think this the 18 or the, the 16 or the 15 or any of the other vintages are really that that they're awful they're they're really wines but this wine it just you know when you taste it it just hits all the right receptors and um you know I think that's a wine note that we're all going to be proud of for a long time, regardless of, of of how it does in the in the media. I just I, I'm very confident that our consumers at Three Sticks that know Durrell are going to love that wine, so that, that makes so me exciting. That yeah. makes me happy. so that makes me happy.
1: Excellent. No, I made a mental note once it's in a bottle I'm definitely going to get. It. Be getting my hands on some, and you guys got an insider tip, so you better get on that list. Yeah, put on your
0: calendar. I I, I told the crew uh, we need to get some extra magnums because I think I want to buy like a that that to me is that that wine will it'll take it on it'll take on the the age and it'll taste really that that'll be a fun wine to drink in twenty years in a magnum, you know. What what
1: again? what a great proposition for the future and exciting, and we all could use things that are positive and wonderful, especially today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. I have a million more questions, but hopefully, you know, we'll book something in the near future and you'll indulge me some more with your.
0: Absolutely, yeah. We can we can dive into Bob Cabral wines a little bit more, and uh, maybe I can get some wine sent to you so you can actually taste some while while we're having this conversation. So.
1: Let's, let's try to do that no it's, it's totally happening I'm super excited for it um, and I just thank you from the bottom of my heart not just for what you do but for who you are you're such a shining example of everything that's right with
0: humanity well oh, well thanks so much thanks again for tuning
1: in to the official podcast of Palette Exposure featuring Alona Thompson we'll see
0: you again next week